0: Today on episode number 226 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Rajiv Jungiani shares about critical, open pedagogy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled to be welcoming to the show today Rajiv Janjiani. He is an expert in critical open pedagogy, and I'm thrilled to be having today's conversation with him. Rajiv is a special advisor to the provost on open education and a psychology instructor at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in Vancouver, Canada, where he conducts research in open education and the scholarship of teaching and learning. A co-director of the Open Pedagogy Notebook with Robin DeRosa, Rajiv also serves as an Associate Editor of Psychology Learning and Teaching and is an Ambassador for the Center for Open Science. His most recent book is Open, The Philosophy and Practices that are Revolutionizing Education and Science. Rajiv, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's a real thrill to be here. It's a thrill to have you on the show and I'm excited to be talking more about open education with you today. And let's start right off. You travel all over the world. You've spoke to so many people and you're so enveloped in this in your own campus. Talk about why most of us get interested in open education.
1: Oh, that's a really big question. I think there's many, many reasons why, but I think certainly in North America, probably the biggest reason that, that people learn about open education or perhaps start delving into it is really the question of access. I mean, I think you know, around the world, there's a lot of sensitivity to, to barriers to access uh, even more serious than what we face in North America. But uh, certainly it's still the case that higher education, even though it has this promise of being a, you know, a vehicle for economic and social mobility, is still very much structured in ways that reinforce and replicate uh, existing power structures. So, you know, whether you're talking about legacy admissions on the one hand or something as mundane as textbook costs on the other, we are constantly finding that that students who are already marginalized are being kept out, out of the system. So... I think people come to open education because they learn about open educational resources. Um, they learn that they can maybe swap out an expensive commercial textbook for a high-quality open textbook. Certainly, make their students' lives easier. But of course, then they learn that there's a lot more to it than that.
0: Yeah, and and so you you have shared about that most people get really excited about OER and they come to OER mm-hmm. for the cost savings. But you've said that they stay for the pedagogy. Could you talk a little bit about how many of our teaching approaches change and transform as we become engaged in open education?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's no question that the central gift that open educational resources bring to students is that they make college more affordable, I mean, just to lay it out a bit more, there's actually no other consumer good that rose in cost as much as commercial textbooks did. Uh, I mean, they started collecting records in 1977, and between then and now, it's been over 1,000%. It's pretty much always been between three and four times the rate of inflation. And we constantly find that students who are marginalized in various ways, they're first in their family to attend university, they are uh, holding student loans, they're working many hours a week. Those are the ones that are trying to do without the books because of cost or choosing courses on the basis of cost and so on. But for faculty, I think once we start adopting OER, it typically starts slowly, where maybe you swap it out and you treat it the same. But that, of course, what defines open educational resources is not that they're free, is not that they're online, but it's the permissions. And so the permissions are typically typically called the 5R. Uh, David Wiley coined that. So we're talking about the, the rights to reuse, absolutely, but also to revise remix retain and redistribute and so for students you know reuse of course and then retain you get to keep it forever you're not losing a, a least ebook or anything like that but for faculty it's really about the revision and remixing so i mean consider that you know we don't have to bend our courses to map onto the table of contents of a textbook we can actually <laughs> modify our instructional resources to serve our pedagogical goals so we don't have to tell students don't read chapter four take it out You know, if your discipline like mine is meandering its way through a replicability crisis, you don't have to wait three years for a new edition to to reflect those changes in the field. You know, embed local examples, local statistics. And even if the the least amount of advantage that that faculty take off the permissions is to simply change the names of the people and the examples and the text to reflect the diversity of the classroom to make it more inclusive, I still think there's power to that. So for me, it's a lot about, yes... Uh, you start with cost savings, and I'm never going to understate the importance of that. I think it's incredibly easy to forget how powerful that is for students. But for faculty, it's it's really a reinvigoration of pedagogy.
0: I wonder if we could just talk through an example, because I, I do love talking about the ideas, but I also love about practically what it might look like. And since in your, mm-hmm. in your field, your field crosses over a bit into mine, because... There's the area of leadership that would be organizational psychology so I know enough to be dangerous mm-hmm. of course but one of the things I was very disappointed about in terms of the replicability crisis is some of the criticisms that have come up around the marshmallow study and am I picking one that you're familiar with the um, marshmallow yeah. study Walk okay. the show yeah yeah so um, would you for the, for the listeners would you share with them what the marshmallow study is and and in case that they're not familiar with it
1: Sure. I mean, yeah, it's a very famous old study, uh, classic in a sense, where you know typically a young child is given uh, a marshmallow and they're given the option of eating a single marshmallow immediately, or if they wait a certain length of time, perhaps ten minutes even, they could have two. And of course, the 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 experimenter leaves the room at this point. No doubt, the student or in this case the the child is being observed, whether through a video camera or, or a one-way mirror. And really the question is uh, whether they can delay gratification long enough. And they try to use this as a metric, as a, as a test to really predict uh, a set of uh, life outcomes that stem from the ability to delay one's gratification. But of course, as you noted, uh, some of the more recent research uh, has started to challenge that sort of simple narrative.
0: One of the things that I read, and, and I'm, I know I'm going to completely oversimplify, <laughs> but, but was that for some of our more at-risk students, just to use them as an example, that they actually in their lives may have really benefited by the equivalent of eating that first marshmallow You know, if you are food insecure, for example, then when food was provided to you, it would not be to your benefit to not eat it and and consume it right then. So, Again, I'm totally oversimplifying, but I I wanted to just give that overarching example. A psychology professor may look at a textbook and say, I need to really do some revision here. I have to modify how I've been teaching this and how the students learn about this. So what, what would that look like then for a psychology professor, perhaps teaching, you know, introduction to psychology to revise an open textbook? What, what would be the practical steps they mm-hmm. would take?
1: I think there's a number of things a faculty member can do by themselves, but uh, really, I think the magic of open pedagogy is when you throw it open, not just to the faculty member, but you also invite students mm. to sort of play an active role in, in shaping this public knowledge commons. And so, I mean, I often work with students to, the simplest way would be to annotate so a lovely open source annotation tools, one called Hypothesis, for example, and I'm mentioning them because they're just wonderful citizens of the open education community. And I work with my students, so we're using open textbooks, and the students can highlight various bits of text, and they can annotate it. In some cases, they can share their own experiences that illustrate particular phenomena to make it more comprehensible with a different example for future students. They might share external resources, or in this case, they might really bring in and interrogate the reporting or description of the classic study uh, by linking out to contemporary research, which is not suggesting that, again, a single contemporary study is going to displace our understanding But slowly, as we sort of work our way to the point where we can run meta-analyses on this subject, uh, we can come to a a clearer understanding of maybe the boundary conditions of certain effects. And even if you don't want to crowd the the text in in a particular textbook, or even if it's an open textbook that much, I think the margins are a beautiful place for, for students to engage in a critical annotation exercise.
0: And I just love your example so much. Maybe we could go through a few more of these R's just in this example. Um, what about what would remixing mm-hmm. look like for for this example? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, for example, so remixing is typically when you've got, uh, you know, more than one openly licensed resource. So perhaps you don't even have to think about it in terms of different texts, although that could be the case. But perhaps there's openly licensed videos. So TED Talks are openly licensed uh, videos. For example, maybe you want to bring in and embed a, a particular video in the middle of the text. Students could create brief instructional videos, openly license those, remix this within the, uh, the, the text itself. But remixing is probably less popular than revision, and I think revision can take many forms. You can look at updating statistics examples. You can look at contextualizing as well to look at uh, you know local examples. So, even though so much of the research in our discipline has taken place in North America, it sort of led to this problem of weird samples or or to to spell that out, samples that are drawn from Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries, checking to see how much that does generalize to a local context with a very different population. So I think the localization, the updating are some of the ways in which revision takes place as well.
0: You spoke about hypothesis as a tool that a lot of faculty are using in the open education Mm -hmm. movement are there any other tools that you want to talk about specifically that, that faculty should be considering familiarizing themselves with in this effort? And then before we get to a really important idea of a critical lens on open education.
1: Sure. I mean, I think the, the beautiful thing about the technologies that I'm describing, so hypothesis being one and the, the two others that I'll talk about now, are they're really open source software. So I think the added advantage is we're talking about the ideology that's baked into these platforms reflects the values of the open education movement. We're not sort of tying ourselves into a particular proprietary technology that can suddenly vanish overnight. It's not also driven by you know venture capitalists seeking a massive return. So we're not so worried about students' data being monetized or hived in a particular way. So in addition to Hypothesis, I would say uh, the biggest tool is Pressbooks. Pressbooks is a plugin and theme for WordPress, which is, again, open source, that has really become the backbone of the open textbook movement. It's uh, free and open source software, of course, but it really enables a wonderfully easy editing uh, and creating process for open textbooks. The other piece also I'll mention is a set of technologies called H5P, and that's just the letter H, the digit 5, and the letter P, which are wonderful interactive technologies that one can build in using uh, HTML5. And all of these things play together. So for example, if I want to have an open textbook, I find that it is like most open textbooks available in Pressbooks. I can download it, I can open it up, I can edit it, I can contextualize it, I can embed the examples I want. I can add in some H5P so that if I want my students as they're reading it to go through some formative quizzing with immediate feedback, if I want the images of, you know, brain anatomy to have clickable hotspots with more information coming out, H5P again enables that. And then when I publish it uh, for my students, of course they can annotate it throughout the semester, making the resource even richer for successive cohorts of students. So those would be my top three.
0: Thank you so much for those, and I, I we could do an entire episode just on one of them, let alone all three of them. So I do appreciate yeah. though helping us just. We hear about the idea, we get inspired, and then where some playgrounds we might start experimenting in. And when we start experimenting in this playground, one of the things that you've really helped me with and so many of us that want to do better for our students and just collectively around this area of access and open education is putting more of a critical lens on it. And as we navigate through our experimentation and wanting to adopt some of these approaches, what are some of the top issues that you want to make sure that we are considering uh, to really keep those values intact like you talked about earlier? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think for, for me, and I'm, I'm grateful that, that you think I've uh, been able to help, uh, this is a, a real struggle and it's a real, uh, it's really challenging the status quo in so many ways, but I think in ways that allows many faculty to, to rediscover the reason why we got into education in the first place. So I think for me, open pedagogy is really infused by two different things. On the one hand, we're talking about open licensing, open educational resources, and that side of it. But on the other, it's really critical pedagogy in the sort of tradition of Henry Giroux and others who've written about it, you know, thinking Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks. And so in that sense, there's definitely an activism that's quite explicit, uh, at least for me. And I don't think it's something to shy away from. But when we talk about sort of critical approaches to this, i think it is important one place to start i think is there's a lot of discussions about access that simply ignore forget dismiss questions of accessibility and again you know who are we seeing higher education is reserved for it's not about you know just not systematically alienating a segment of, of our population it's about all benefiting from taking a more inclusive approach right so it's like at the end of every conference presentation there's usually you know the Q and A period and somebody will say oh it's okay i don't need the mic yeah, but the mic is not for you. It's for the people in the room who are hard of hearing. And it's that thinking that I think we I'd really like to trigger as people think about accessibility.
0: I love that example of being at a conference. And I, and I certainly, I don't do that very often, but that's because I'm hard of hearing in one of my ears. So it's easy for me to empathize, mm. but I absolutely know I do the equivalent in other aspects of my teaching. Could you give us a few more examples of where our desire for access ignores questions of accessibility.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and are different, different barriers, different uh, challenges to this. One that, again, I think we get swept up in this notion of, you know, the digital w- will make it easier with the marginal cost of reproduction of resource approaching zero. But, of course, there's digital redlining, uh, which really looks at not just the digital divide, but the causes of the digital divide. And I know you've had Chris Gilead on your show and Chris has written really importantly about this issue. And it also, I think, really demonstrates not just the, the issue and how problematic it is when you cannot assume that all of your students have access to the technology, to the devices, to the internet, or at least the right level of bandwidth, for example. But it also, I think, illustrates how deeply existing power structures are embedded, even at a subtle level, in, in our policy decision, uh, decisions. So we cannot assume that digital delivery is good enough. We might be going in with the best of intentions, but actually exacerbating and further marginalizing marginalized students. A few other areas, if I may.
0: Yeah, please.
1: Chris and I have had a chat about this. I think when we talk about access, we focus usually on the students and that's correct. But as someone who's involved in a lot of OER creation, I I believe it's really important to interrogate it on the side of the faculty as well. And especially when we've got Uh, you know, increasingly precarious faculty working with increasingly precarious students. I don't want it to be the case that the open education movement continues to over rely on uncompensated or undercompensated labor. Because I really think then ultimately we are making it only possible for people who are privileged, whether it's through a tenured position or who don't need the income, are wealthy enough to be in a position where they can create OER, which again over represents that ideology of privilege in the examples, perhaps unintentionally. And then, of course, we can go deeper. We can talk about data privacy. Amy Collier has written really importantly about this, about how there's no such thing as the harmless collection of data or the benevolent collection of data, and that these data privacy issues disproportionately affect our most vulnerable students. There's, there's questions about the edtech platforms. I alluded to this earlier. and People like Audrey Waters and Jesse Stommel have really helped uncover and unpack some of those concerns before we sign away our students' rights on proprietary platforms. And then finally, maybe I'll just add, even though this is a big discussion about critical open pedagogy that can go on, that agency should never be forgotten. But I think we might recognize the the thrill and the advantages of authentic learning experiences that have students creating resources for the commons instead of a sort of a disposable throwaway research essay that might be their 20th. But... They should have the agency, giving them the choice not to. There are good reasons why students may not want to leave a digital footprint. So thinking it through, scaffolding when they have to develop and exercise new skills, absolutely. But really remembering that not everything could be and not everything should be open. Open licensing is not a stick to beat people over the head with. If you consider traditional knowledge, that would be another area where traditional Creative Commons licensing is not appropriate sometimes.
0: I think back to conversations I've been so honored to also get to speak to the people you mentioned, Amy Collier, although not about that topic of data privacy, but in that case, it was about not yetness and just this idea Mm. of encouraging us to not feel like we have to have it all figured out before we start experimenting in our own teaching. Yeah, And Audrey Waters and Jesse, but one of the things that I think about is that sadly, I speak to these individuals or I think about people possibly listening to this podcast and it still surprises me and I don't want it to. In the sense that, you know, I like, I I wish I had a better way of discovering some of these things for myself and, and not have to mm-hmm. be informed of my own ignorance by these experts. Is there a recommendation you have for us to allow us to put that new lens on in a more permanent way such that we can identify more clearly in our own context areas where we really need to grow and expand our own thinking and and really get that critical lens.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, so many of these people who I'm, I'm listening over here happen to coalesce around, uh, you know, hybrid pedagogy, the journal, mm. um, and of course, Digital Pedagogy Lab Institute as well. So Amy, Jesse, of course, Audrey, and Chris have all spoken, keynoted or led tracks at that institute. So I would say that for me, that's a real hub. It, it certainly attracts this kind of a critical discussion. But I do think it needs to be intentional. I think it's far too easy uh, to sort of uh, follow along with, with current practice and even when you look at sort of lists of what people are reading, you know, invited keynotes at conferences, I think it's very—it's changing a bit, but it's usually the case that critical conversations are the ones that are happening at the margins. So I think there's that intention that's required to to center the margins, if you will. So uh, hybrid pedagogy is is one of those rare places. And of course, uh, one of the recommendations that I was saving for the end, Mm -hmm. but I will provide it now, is of course uh, a collection that was just published by Jesse Stummel and and Sean Michael Morris from Hybrid Pedagogy called An Urgency of Teachers, uh, the Work of Critical Digital Pedagogy. So I think that reflects many of these issues, but as a hub, certainly hybrid pedagogy.
0: One of the things that I've been also inspired by so much out of many of the conversations on the podcast, most specifically when DeRay McKesson was on recently, as just the idea mm-hmm. of proximity. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about someone recently, there was an email circulating around my institution having to do with computer labs. And should we have the cost of manning a computer lab and you know, all the upkeep or should we have some kind of a Modified one to one strategy and all this. And I, at the time, I, w- I was feeling rather snarky, and I just wanted to write back and say, we don't use enough open textbooks, and if we just made a little bit of effort there, we would save, you know, many computers times over. But anyway, that was. Uh, I'm going a little bit on a tangent, but. I thought, you know, if you really wanted to know, go sit in the computer labs and talk to the people who mm-hmm. use them and talk more to students and really find a way to to the best way that we could put ourselves in their shoes. And anyway, I just think a lot about the benefits to, yes, I mean, oh, my gosh, the the people who have become these experts who are writing for hybrid pedagogy and leading workshops at digital pedagogy lab are in close proximity with those students that have the biggest needs at our institutions. And I think that's part of why they're able to have that critical lens.
1: I think so, but I think it's a really difficult position to be in sometimes because this goes back to Amy Collier's concept of of not yetness. There's a vulnerability of practicing like this, Mm -hmm. of being comfortable with releasing your work, your ideas, before they're fully classroom tested, before they're fully peer-reviewed. You are being transparent. You're thinking openly. You're sharing openly. And that certainly uh, puts you at risk. And these people take that risk for all of our collective benefit. I think we all should be immensely grateful to them. But that itself, I think, tells us that the ideology that's baked into this is challenging. You can, it's immensely liberating to practice openness, but it can be immensely threatening in terms of the mindset. But I think that's where the question of open pedagogy for me is, yes, it's about free, but it's also about freedom. And being able to support that kind of work is not easy for many of these people.
0: Would you talk a little bit more about that freedom? I've, I've not heard someone say that. So, yes, it's about free, but also about freedom. Could you share a little bit more about freedom?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, in, in, in an academic context, we can always talk about academics, certainly. You know, it's something that, that is increasingly under threat, no doubt. And we don't think about it in the context of our teaching and learning resources. But, of course, when we think about traditional copyright and how restrictive that is, then, of course, it's suddenly having the permission to do so much more. For students, I think a lot of it is moving away from from what Freire described as the banking model of education, right? So giving them so much more agency in the context of their own learning, where they can truly drive their own education. But then when you think more broadly about, and this maybe goes back to Henry Giroux over here, where he talked about critical pedagogy and how expanding the public good, promoting democratic social change, he said, are at the very heart of critical education and a precondition for global justice. So when I work with students and replace a research essay and have them instead work to produce resources in support of the UN's sustainable development goals, that is very explicitly activistic, yes. Uh, in a way that, that allows students to see that their work has a larger purpose. They pour energy into it, of course, because they care about it. They see the worth, But it certainly has a broader goal about the, the democratization of education, but in a way that is explicitly anti-racist, decolonial, and, of course, open.
0: I have one last question. This is more of a selfish one, but I can't be the only one who has this question. You just described such a powerful thing of having your students... Not do a throwaway assignment, but to actually contribute to the larger good. And when I have tried that before, I'm just stunned by the excitement. I would even say exhilaration that just fills the room when they see the possibilities. But I Mm -hmm. will also say it is some of the most miserable experiences I've had teaching in the (laughs) sense of because from there there's just all kinds of messiness. I, and I don't want to go on, mm-hmm. on too great of a tangent or, or sound like I'm complaining. Cause I'm certainly not. I mean, it's so uh-huh. fun to see a classroom come alive like that, but then not having worked out about, well, pe- people who don't want to share or people, I mean, yeah. some people think they want to share it first and then they're terrified later. And i <laughs> just trying to navigate yeah. all that. I just feel like I'm clumsy. And does the clumsiness ever go away? Do you get better at this stuff? Or is that just like, if you're going to try this stuff, Bonnie, that's always going to, it's always <laughs> going to feel like that. I mean, what's what's been your experience in coaching faculty on this?
1: Oh, it's such beautiful clumsiness, isn't it? But, I mean, anyway, <laughs> it's clumsiness on our part as well. I mean, yeah, oh, for sure. No, it's together, I, entirely right? so,
0: on my part. It feels like, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think uh, uh, part of the beauty of this is this is something we are figuring out together this is even though people have been practicing open pedagogy before that term was a thing working on it together certainly helps so we are discovering that there are ways in which we can protect students where needed uh, you know support them where absolutely necessary you know in terms of scaffolding we can bake in the usual best practices we can rely on you know um, revise, resubmit processes, peer review, we can look at a number of ways in which identity can be protected, work within the closed LMS if necessary for a certain point until the students are comfortable and perhaps the instructor adjudicates that the work has reached a certain threshold if that's the way you want to operate. But I think more than anything, along the way you quickly discover that there's a range of information literacies and sometimes digital literacies that need to be taught when we're stretching students in these ways. So there's instruction for us, there's instruction for them. But I think if we support them, if they make educated choices about what they want to do, then certainly we're doing them a a wonderful service. I would not want to force them to perform public scholarship ever. And I think there's different ways in which you can calibrate these exercises for students who are first-year students versus senior students and do this sort of iteratively, where, again, going back to this notion of, of vulnerability, it could be students building on one another's work revising their work. I and mean, you see this happening all over the place. Ohio State University, there's um, a book called uh, Environmental Science Bites, where students in the environmental science book have been writing these bite-sized chunks. The collection is edited by the faculty. Uh, Libra Texts, another project based at UC Davis, is a wiki that's controlled by faculty, indebted by faculty, but it's written by students. It's the most visited chemistry website in the world, and it's been built by students. There's students creating videos, all sorts of things. But I think we have to approach it critically again. So it is exciting. And the work of people like the Wiki Education Foundation shows you really when they survey students how they feel about it. They're they absolutely enthralled that their work has purpose, that they can sort of free work from behind paywalls, and that my students' work when they edit Wikipedia is going to be read by thousands of more people than will ever read a peer-reviewed article that I publish. And I think that's beautiful. But yes, there's messiness. It's difficult. It's difficult. But I think hiding that and waiting to show the world this, this is the perfect product that was created by my perfect students in my perfectly thought out course, is not a way that that practices education honestly.
0: Mm. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to re-listen to the last three minutes of this episode about 60 times a day. That was so helpful. Thank you. (laughs) I hope it was also helpful for listeners. I believe that it will be as we start to do this, because you just really, you hit on so many things that I can do better. I need to recognize them early. For example, I've written with doctoral cohorts, two open textbooks. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Does it ever just feel like a huge learning curve? And, and, you know, I tried doing the revising and they, the second cohort just wasn't Mm -hmm. interested at all. They were passionate in starting something new. And, but Mm -hmm. there's so much I can do in the future. It's always going to be messy, but there's things that can make it less messy that you described. You used so many techniques that you did. and, I would love to link to these examples too, in the show notes of ohio State University, UC Davis, et cetera. so yeah, that's really of helpful course.
1: and maybe it's just worth adding over here that I think one of the mistakes we often make when when we want to experiment with open pedagogy is thinking, oh, I need to figure out how to do this myself, even if I'm copying what somebody else has already done, but it's much easier to do this stuff collaboratively, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's real benefits to it, right so these collaborative open pedagogy projects across institutions, even within the same discipline, I think are, are really incredibly powerful.
0: Would you share about the collaborative open project that you've started with Robin Derosa, the Open Pedagogy Notebooks and Set, is an example of one?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and I should say Robin, of course, is is the, the hero uh, uh, of mine, of just a champion, and one of these people who. From the moment I went up to her and sort of nervously introduced myself to her, she's been my constant you know, uh, collaborator, and I'm blessed, blessed, blessed because of that. But she and I realized that so many faculty get excited about open pedagogy, and we, we, as you mentioned, work with lots of institutions to help them in this space. But it's much easier to practice it when you can see concrete examples in practice, perhaps even in your discipline. So the Open Pedagogy Notebook, which itself was inspired by a project out of Ontario by Terry Green called the Open Faculty Patchbook, is really a space for community. So it's a space where you can browse through examples, diverse examples at the assignment level, at the course level of how people are infusing their scholarship or their teaching practice with open pedagogy. But it's also a place for you to share ideas. So on the front page, even if it's just a stub of an idea that you haven't even tried out yet, we invite people to share it because this is how we move forward is is sharing and working and testing these ideas collaboratively. So it's just openpedagogy.org. And we may have designed the space, but the space is really owned by community.
0: And before we get to the recommendations segment, I'd love to have you share about your book entitled Open, the philosophy and practices that are revolutionizing education and science so people can get their hands on it as well.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that was a real uh, labor of love with my colleague, Robert Biswastina. I worked with him for, for a few years on an uh, open education project in psychology. But, I mean, we got to this point where even though we were working on open education, mostly we were working, of course, within the context of a discipline that's been dealing with some issues, shall we say, to do with repl- 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 replicability. And so we were looking at open education, but also open science practices and inevitably also open access And it became clear that these are, in some sense, different, distinct movements, but they've been running parallel paths. They have different players, but I think they're dealing with fundamentally uh, similar issues, and they have similar values. So we put together this volume, it's an edited volume, we approached people who we thought were really leading the discussion in many of these spheres, you know, Brian Nosek from the Center for Open Science, Robin uh, DeRosa, of course, and Scott Ferguson, uh, writing about open open pedagogy at the time, people who've started open access journals, and of course, people across the open education space as well, from Cable Green to to Martin Weller, uh, lots of others. A whole slew of librarians as well. So the book itself has been published with an open license, so people are, are thrilled when people continue to download it. It's been out for about a year and a half now. But it really puts together, I think, you know, accessible chapters by these leading experts in these different areas to better understand these three movements, uh, what they share, what the challenges are, and what the path forward is.
0: I told you I was a big spender and spent 99 cents on the digital copy on Amazon.com. So try not to, you know, spend that 50 cents all in one place.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is there was no way to upload it to Amazon without it being at least a dollar. So I do regret that. But... um (laughs) The publisher, of course, Ubiquity Press, um, you can just find it on their website itself and download it absolutely for free. Yeah. And more than that, if you want to translate it into a different language, if you want to you know, adapt it for your context and republish it, you have our blessing.
0: That's so great. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I have two that are very closely related. The first mm-hmm. has to do with season three of one of my favorite podcasts it's radio labs more perfect podcast and they just came out with season three and season three is i'm going to say the most unique podcast idea i've ever heard of because they decided to focus on the amendments for the constitution and Hmm. they instead of your normal type of podcasting content which would be mostly just um speaking, they had really famous musical artists create an album. So they have a new album, which is my second recommendation is called 27, the most perfect album. And it's got musicians, some of which I did not I'd never heard of before. But the most eclectic group of amazing musicians there were mariachi artists Dolly Parton wrote a song (laughs) a bunch of artists that are you know sort of indie artists I've never heard of before but ones that many of us would have heard of like they might be giants wrote a song about mm-hmm. the third amendment and it's just they let them choose which amendment they wanted to write a song about and it was just fascinating oh. to see so those of us that remember what it was like to have an album an actual album you could hold in your hands and so they have you know liner art that goes along with each one of these and then they have a podcast wow. episode and oh it's it amazing sounds like it would be a
1: phenomenal open pedagogy project exactly it? With the range of contributions
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because I always think I've been learning more and more about universal design for learning. And I'm doing mm-hmm. that more in my own teaching and giving students choices about how they would like to, whether they want to turn in a paper or do a video and that kind of thing, but like, never thought of having them write a song. I mean, <laughs> you do imagine it's just, and what, what great examples too. And so it's so worth going and looking at the website, downloading the music to your player and I can only imagine in a class how fun it would be. I love music just in general, but to play one of these songs and then get the students and, and speaking of hypothesis I mean you could go to the lyrics and have them you know adding mm-hmm. in their comments and annotations within the liner notes as well and the lyrics are just so powerful so check those two things out the podcast and also the album 27 the most perfect album and they will be linked to in the show notes today's episode is 226 so teaching in higher ed.com slash 226 and Rajiv what do you have to recommend for us today
1: well, I, I started with four, but I sort of gave away one already in terms of the, the book by, by uh, Jesse and Sean. So I have three remaining. One is a hashtag, one is an action, and one is a practice. So the hashtag is hopefully by now a famous one Scholar Sunday. So we started by a wonderful, wonderful person and, of course, brilliant scholar, Raul Pacheco Vega, who works in Mexico. And he started this to to help build community, of course, but help us to also share why we follow other scholars on Twitter, for example. So, you know, every Sunday you will see this hashtag. I love using it as well, but bringing attention to that and following that. And you'll discover wonderful communities and brilliant and funny, funny scholars through that hashtag. The second was a very concrete action. Which is go to Patron, find Audrey Waters' page, and support Audrey Waters. She's one of the very few, very, very few critical voices interrogating educational technology. It's not swept up, funded, or co opted by Silicon Valley and the ideology of venture capitalism or surveillance capitalism for that matter. She really does need our support, and we need her more than she needs us. So I want to urge everyone to support Audrey if possible. And finally, just as a way of practice, I think uh, some of our discussion earlier, um, you brought up the question of representation. We talked about centering work on the margins. But I also want to say it's difficult, I think, when we leave it to the marginalized to always have to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think the practices I'm talking about are things that could be small. It could be revising your syllabi to reflect work of diverse scholars from diverse backgrounds. It could be, you know, if you're working within an institution and you're seeing something like a word like collegiality being weaponized in order to suppress dissent, speak out. Uh, and finally, if you're invited to speak in, at an event, the keynote, invite a talk or be on a panel, uh, ask about the, the slate, about the, the diversity of the slate of, of speakers and suggest names of speakers representation matters incredibly. And I think if you have the power and the privilege of already having been at the receiving end of an invitation, please use that. It matters more than you can imagine.
0: Thank you so much for expanding our view of open education and helping us put this critical lens on it. And thank you for this hashtag action and practice that we can integrate into our own work and continue the work of open
1: I'm deeply grateful to have been in this conversation
0: with you. It it
1: inspires me just listening to your podcast and I'm really still pinching myself that I'm eventually going to be up up here on it.
0: Thank you so much. In case you couldn't tell, there's so much that I'm personally taking away from this episode and conversation with Rajiv Janjani. Thank you so much, Rajiv, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to write in and tell me the ways that you think you might be able to put into practice some of the guidance that Rajiv gave us, hop on over to the show notes. That's at teachinginhighered.com slash 226, and you can talk a little bit about how you can make your own pedagogy more open and more inclusive. And thanks to all of you for sharing about the podcast with your colleagues. I just love seeing the community grow and to start to see more people listening and joining in these conversations. If you'd like to recommend the podcast, it's usually easiest just to show them how easy it is to listen to a podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.